An airship flies high in the sky. Inside, a young orphan girl is trying to escape men who want to take a crystal that she wears around her neck. In her attempt to escape, she climbs through a window to the exterior of the ship. Slipping and falling, she tumbles towards the earth in what surely will mean her death. But instead of falling at terminal velocity, she begins to float gently down. Could this have something to do with the crystal? Today I'm talking about the 1986 animated film Castle in the Sky, a Japanese adventure film by Hayao Miyazaki. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas Multipass. You're a stupid mind. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Listen. Well, hello there. Welcome to Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. This is the third Monday of the month, and that means I'm going to talk about a film that has been recommended to me by a listener. For those new to the podcast, once a month, a listener takes over the show by making me watch a movie they have a fondness for. At the end of the show, I will either celebrate the listener or curse their name for all eternity. Today, Nancy Fry recommended that I watch the 1986 Japanese film Castle in the Sky, written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Now, I should say right away that I'm not an expert in Japanese animation. In fact, I know very little. I mean, as a child, I did watch Speed Racer, but I don't think that counts. And years ago, I went to a screening of Katsuhiro Tomo's 1988 film, Akira. And I've watched the whole Blue Seed series. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Hayao Miyazaki's work, you're probably saying, You mean you've never watched Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle? What's wrong with you? You know, and the thing is, I think we even have Spirited Away on DVD. My wife had purchased that, and I've never watched it. But you know, that's the reason why I started this podcast, so you can force me to watch movies that I wouldn't normally watch. And I'll say that one of the first things that went through my mind while watching this was, it was so good to watch traditional animation, instead of, you know, 3D, computer, CGI stuff, which frankly I'm getting tired of. Anyway... Now, usually when I watch a non-English language film, I like to watch it with subtitles rather than the overdubbed version. But since the dubbed version was on HBO Max, which we have a subscription, and the subtitled version was on some other channel that costs like 12 bucks, I watched the one I didn't have to pay for. And besides, it uses the voice talents of James Vanderbeek, Anna Paquin, Cloris Leachman, Mark Hamill, and Mandy Patankin. And to justify my decision a little, there was an interview that Miyazaki did in 2004 in which he says, Who is to say that a subtitled print isn't more authentic? When you watch the subtitled version, you probably miss just as many things. There is a layer and nuance that you're not going to get. Film crosses so many borders these days. Of course it's going to be distorted. If Miyazaki says it's okay, then it's okay. Now, my friend from Australia, Russell, who contributes to the show quite a bit, knows more about this film and Hayao Miyazaki than I do, so he wrote me a bit, and I'll read it now. 
Hayao Miyazaki is a Japanese animator, director, producer, screenwriter, author, and magna artist. A magna enthusiast from his early days, he joined Toei Animation in 1963 when the Japanese animation industry was on a roll from shows like Astro Boy, Kimba the White Lion, Phantom Man, Gigantor, Marine Boy, and other successful TV series and movies. During his early days, he worked as an in-between artist, then as a key animator. And then he moved to April in 1971, where he co-directed the TV series Lupin III about a dashing thief and his gang, which also formed the subject of his first feature film, The Castle of Cagliostro. In the same period, he started writing and illustrating the epic sci-fi magna Nasica Valley of the Wind from 1982 to 1994. Then he directed the 1984 Topcraft film version, which was a popular success and attracted serious attention from animation fans and critics. Thanks, Russell. And Russell also wrote a bit about the film itself, and I'll get into that in a minute. But interestingly, I read a short interview with Miyazaki, and he seems to hate almost everything American, though he says that John Ford was a big influence. Anyway, I don't want to go too much into his politics and such. That's not what this show is about. As far as animation, he says this of CGI cartoons. Whoever creates the stuff has no idea what pain is whatsoever. I'm utterly disgusted. If you really want to make creepy stuff, go ahead and do it. I would never wish to incorporate this technology into my work at all. I do feel strongly that this is an insult to life itself. And he also added, I believe the tool of an animator is a pencil. That was back like in 2016, and lately it seems like that he's softened up a bit as far as CGI goes. According to an interview in The Guardian, he admitted that he liked Toy Story, and even admitted to using CGI in his own movies, but never more than 10% of the finished print. He said, Actually, I think CGI has the potential to equal or even surpass what the human hand can do. And then he added, but it's far too late for me to give it a try. CGI does have its place, but I wish there was still more traditional animation out there. And personally, I don't like it when they take stuff that was traditionally 2D animation and try to redo it as 3D animation. I mean, I enjoyed Scooby-Doo as a 2D animation cartoon, and even though it was done so cheaply, I would still rather watch that than that updated CGI version they had a few years ago. Anyway, off my soapbox. But hey, we're here to talk about his film Castle in the Sky. It's the story of a young girl named Sheeta who has a magic crystal. She's being chased by air pirates in the military. She meets a young orphan boy named Pazu, and the two search for the legendary floating castle that might hold the answers to her and the crystal. There's a man named Colonel Muska who is working with the military, and he seems to know more than he's letting on, and he wants to find her for his own reasons. Now, going back to my friend Russell, he wrote a full synopsis of the film, which I really appreciate, but I'm not going to read it, and I hope he understands. I just don't feel that in this podcast we should go step-by-step step through a plot. I mean, either people listening to the podcast have seen it before, and therefore they don't need us to tell the full story, or they haven't seen it, and then we probably shouldn't spoil it for them, right? But Russell did describe the film this way. 
Set in a steampunk version of the early 20th century, Laputa, Castle in the Sky, follows the adventures of a boy and girl who are trying to keep a crystal with amazing energy from falling into the hands of the military, assorted secret agents, and a family of aviation pirates, all while searching for the legendary floating castle Laputa. Despite being an Asian production, the characters and locations are clearly Northern European and the soldiers wear British and German-style uniforms from the early 20th century. The Goliath resembles a Zeppelin on steroids, while the air pirates are similar to the characters from early science fiction novels and sci-fi films like Air Pirates of 1920. The flying castle Laputa has a much earlier origin. It comes from Jonathan Swift's 1726 classic Gulliver's Travels, where it is the abode of a pioneer scientist. In case you're not familiar with it, Laputa was left out of the Fletcher Harryhausen adaptions of the story, and less said about the Jack Black version, the better. The film also draws on various Asian culture influences and melds them all into a marvelous alternative world, giving a rich epic quality. The cost of the movie was 5 million yen or 3 million US at the time, and was a record budget for an anime film at the time. It's worth noting that the contemporary Disney film, The Great Mouse Detective, cost $14 million, while Ralph Batchy's Lord of the Rings from 1978 cost $4 million. The cost difference is partially explained by the different pay rates and economics of scale, but it is mainly due to the Japanese anime procedure, in which a compromise between full animation as used in classic Hollywood animation and limited animation as used in TV animation from the 50s till the 90s. Anime does not use as many drawings as full animation, but disguises it by using things like detailed artwork, panning, long flowing robes, and hair moving in the wind, which explains why anime productions have so many long monologues to camera. Laputa's initial box office was $16 million, but since has netted approximately $157 million in box office and various other income sources. Now, Russell goes on to talk about the different dubbed versions. There were two English dubs and some other information, and I apologize, Russell, but I just don't have time to read it all. But it's very interesting stuff, and I enjoyed it. Uh, you're invited to always send me stuff like this. And Russell tells me that as soon as he buys a microphone, he'll start recording bits similar to the bits Nancy records. And Russell, I'm telling you now, you better, because if you don't, I'm going to have to start reading your words in a fake Australian accent, and you don't want that. I don't do accents very well. Of course, I'm kidding. But now, speaking of Nancy, why don't we hear what she has to say? Hello, folks. If this episode's film is your first experience with Studio Ghibli, specifically the films of Hayao Miyazaki, then I envy you. There is nothing more magical than the first encounter with something unique and wonderful. The nice thing about Miyazaki films is that they are totally rewatchable because of the rich art style and the timeless stories. So a second or tenth viewing of your favorites can be almost as powerful as the first. Rather than do a deep dive into some aspect of Castle in the Sky, I thought I'd take you along on my own magical journey of how I discovered Studio Ghibli, my favorites so far, and what I love about each one. There are still a few that I haven't seen, but want to, so don't send us an angry email because I didn't mention your particular favorite. I'll get there. 
Looking at Miyazaki films, you start to notice recurring themes. Most of his stories are about children or young adults, and the children are usually more in tune with nature and the supernatural. The stories are often about overcoming the odds, usually overcoming self-doubt to find your particular strengths. There's often a message that love, real love, wins. There's an emphasis on the beauty of even the smallest of simple things and the power of nature. The hero tales might include pirates, and because of Miyazaki's fascination with aircraft, they're going to be air pirates. There are a lot of aircraft in these films, even if the main topic isn't planes or dirigibles. So many aircraft. If there are no planes or blimps, a boat will probably be substituted, or submarine. The designs of these craft can be quite fanciful and Jules Verne-esque, and many of these films have a steampunk vibe in the guise of an alt-Earth history setting. Although most of the Studio Ghibli films are created for children, they are imminently watchable for any age group because of the sheer artistry and the clean storytelling. The musical scores, usually by Joe Hisaishi, have a rich, evocative signature style, often featuring piano accents for poignant moments. These are not junky anime with knock-kneed schoolgirls in sawed-off sailor suits losing their virtue to some creepy villain or blood-and-gore monster fests. These are classic feature films worthy of returning to again and again. In case you haven't guessed by now, I'm kind of a Miyazaki fan. The films for younger kids especially are my comfort foods that I will turn to when I just need to decompress for a couple of hours. Perhaps the chief of them, still a staple of pop culture in Japan, is My Neighbor Totoro. It's also the first Miyazaki film I ever saw, so that's part of why it has a special place in my heart. In 1989, I was living in Japan, teaching English like so many other folks just out of college. There was no internet back then, and cell phones were for rich people. I was on my own, barely speaking the local language, and just sort of stumbling through the culture, finding cool things along the way. One day, one of the secretaries at my language school handed me a VHS tape, sharing one of her favorite films with me. When I popped it into the player in my little apartment, it seemed to be about two little girls moving to the country with their dad in what looked like 1930s or 40s Japan. It was in Japanese, of course, with no English subtitles, but the story is pretty easy to follow visually. When little supernatural creatures appear in their dilapidated, rustic country house, I was hooked. It was my neighbor Totoro, and it was love at first sight. These days, you can get nicely dubbed or subtitled versions of these films here in the U.S., but it was many years before I saw any of them this way. It didn't matter, because the films are that good. I liked Totoro so much that the secretary loaned me a couple of other tapes. Kiki's Delivery Service is about a little girl leaving home for the first time on a kind of witch walkabout. It's a coming-of-age story with humor and adventure, and it has a talking cat, so of course it's one of my favorites. The other ones in my comfort food category 
are Ponyo, about a little fish girl who wants to be human and finds a friend in a little boy. Spirited Away, a fantastical hero tale about a little girl who learns compassion and self-reliance, and Howl's Moving Castle. Howl is more a young adult tale, an alt-history steampunky romantic epic that basically boils down to Princess Rescues Dragon. As previously mentioned, Miyazaki loves aircraft of all kinds. If that's your jam, you will love Porco Rosso. It's another alt-history story, this one dealing with the personal consequences of war, surviving trauma, and like this week's film, pirates. Leaning heavily into dystopian future fantasy is Nausicaa in the Valley of the Winds. This one is a pure epic hero's tale set in an amazing post-apocalyptic world. If you're a sci-fi fan, this one is for you. Of course, this week's film, Castle in the Air, is wall-to-wall -wall airships and air cities and flying robots galore and pirates. One of the differences between the Japanese original version and the English language dub is that they aged the protagonists a bit from preteens to teenagers. I think this was the right decision. For one, Dola's sons being in love with Shita as a child was a little bit creepy and with the older age bracket, the whole young love thing seems a little more realistic. On the downside, I do think it's too bad that they cut out the sighting of Gulliver's Travels mentioning the flying city of Laputa. I get that this is a fantasy world, but I really don't see the problem with mentioning Jonathan Swift, especially since they left in Muska's reference to Sodom and Gomorrah in the third act. It's not like alternate timeline fiction wasn't a thing in 1998 when Disney made their version. Also on the downside, there's a lot of unnecessary voice acting in the dub. In a lot of the wide shots, so they don't have to match the lip flaps, there are moments like Patsu saying, it's a huge garden, as we see them enter a huge garden. Thanks, Captain Obvious. Interestingly, the titles on the Disney Japanese language version on the DVD mimic the voiceover for the dubbed version, while the original language version that I saw in the theater had a different, more accurate set of subtitles. This means that there are many moments in the dub on the DVD when there are subtitles over silence, because Disney added a lot of aftermarket lines for those wide shots and moments where a character is facing away from the camera. They also made the composer add about 30 minutes worth of additional music for the dub, which at times is just too much. I appreciate replacing the cheap-sounding synthy parts of the original score with orchestral arrangements, but there are a lot of scenes that just don't need any music, and the score becomes intrusive. On the upside, the overall sound design gets some nice tweaks in the dub that I think are improvements. The flopters, those dragonfly wing air scooter things that the pirates use for raids, have a richer, less cartoony sound, for instance. For serious aircraft aficionados, one of Miyazaki's more recent films is a must-see. In 2013, Studio Ghibli released The Wind Rises, a docudrama loosely based on the life of Jiro Horikoshi, designer of the Japanese Zero fighter plane. 
The first big inciting incident is a horrific bit of real history, the devastating Great Kanto Earthquake of 1923. You'll learn a bit of history with this film, even though there's some heavy artistic license regarding Horikoshi's personal life. Little kids probably won't sit still for Miyazaki's young adult romances, but then again they might. The films Whisper of the Heart and The Cat Returns are loosely thematically linked by a mysterious cat or cats. Whisper is your basic young adult love story with artistic teenagers in modern-day Japan. The Cat Returns develops the incidental characters of a fat white cat and a mysterious cat statue into a full-blown fantasy adventure that even little kids will find entertaining. From Up on Poppy Hill is a young adult story set in the 60s. It deals with young love, mistaken identities, and boats instead of aircraft. For an honorable mention, we have Princess Mononoke. It's not that it isn't a great film, because it is. It's just that it's a bit grim. It's a straight-up hero tale set in a fantasy historical Japan. It's definitely not for the wee ones, with scary monsters and bloody battles. There's some fighting and blood in Nausicaa, but it's tame compared with Mononoke. Castle in the Sky is the first Miyazaki film I've seen on the big screen. It was like seeing it for the first time in some ways, as even with a large screen TV, there are some visual details that can be missed. Seeing one of these films in the theater is worth it, if for no other reason than viewing it as it was meant to be seen. Studio Ghibli excels at painterly backgrounds depicting the majesty of cloudy skies, towering storms at sea, and other natural phenomena. These films aren't afraid to let film be film, showing rather than telling. The local theater where I saw Castle in the Sky is basically doing a Miyazaki film festival over the next few weeks. I don't need to see them all, but Howl's Moving Castle, with its epic story and visuals, is coming up, and that one is on my list. Thanks, Nancy, and yep, I'm one of those people who are, much to my shame, unfamiliar with Miyazaki's work. Now, you talk about the anime films with schoolgirls in sailor suits losing their virtue and all that. It reminded me that I used to have a job in the early days of VHS and beta tapes. It was for a company that duped the films for home video. We did work for many of the big studios, but we also did work for some smaller companies. And one of them, and, and I can't remember what they were called, did a lot of Japanese animation. Now, this was in the late 80s, and let me tell you that some of the stuff was so weird, I wouldn't even attempt to describe it, because its subject matter was definitely not for children. It was some pretty bizarre stuff that was pretty pornographic, I would say. And this has really nothing to do with anything, but you talked about seeing these films in the theater. And I can relate, even though this is not quite the same thing. I went to the theater a few years ago to see Casablanca and later The Maltese Falcon, and though I've seen both these films many, many times, seeing them on the big screen, it was like I was seeing them for the first time, or, or even I was seeing a completely different film. It was it's really hard to explain. Anyway, again, thanks for this, and I do plan on checking out more of Miyazaki's films. So now the big question I know you're all asking yourself out there, 
what did Jeff think about it? That's what the world wants to know, right? <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Anyway, here's what I think. It's not a bad film, you know, but personally, I'd rather watch, I don't know, a few episodes of Beavis and Butthead than watch this film again. Sorry, but... Oh, come on now, I was joking. Of course, this was a fantastic film. It's a work of art. It looks beautiful from the beginning to the end. The story was wonderful. And for a two-hour cartoon, it held my interest from beginning to end. And I have to say, I loved hearing the voice of Cloris Leachman. Every time she talked, I think I smiled. Mother, you amaze me. How do you know these things? Oh, well, you can't be a sensitive woman like me without learning a few things. Sheeta and I are exactly alike. All warm and mushy and sensitive. Uh now, so when you boys get married, you go find a gal like her. Huh? She's going to end up like Mama? Her and her air pirates who were there for a bit of comic relief were just wonderful. And I can't say enough good things about Mark Hamill. Mark Hamill has carved quite a career for himself as a voice artist. And the thing that's wonderful about it, it doesn't stand out. You're not thinking, boy, that's Luke Skywalker. I trust you slept well? Where's Potsu? Is he all right? I want to see him. Now this is fit for a princess. Don't worry, Sheeta. Your friend is being treated as if he were the guest of royalty. I want you to see something before you see him. And as far as the music goes, you know, I didn't even think about the music while watching the film. And that's the way it should be. Just like editing, cinematography, directing, and even acting, it should go unnoticed, at least on the first viewing. They all should come together as part of the whole. Now, I watched the film a second time, and I did focus on things like the music and the soundtrack and the Foley work and all that, and I was pretty impressed. So, yes, I enjoyed it, but... You know, I like to go out there and find out what other people in the world think, and for that I usually go to Rotten Tomatoes. The film gets a 91%, which is great, but for some reason I expected it to be higher. Andrew K. gave it 4.5 out of 5 stars and wrote, This is my fourth Miyazaki film that I have seen, and it's definitely up there with my favorites. It has so much heart to it, and the world that Miyazaki creates is fantastic. There are so many cool and fascinating details that he doesn't bother to explain that you simply have to take for granted and enjoy. It's beautiful. While I agree with you, Andrew, what prevented you from giving it the full five stars? There had to be a little something that made you shave off that half star. I'm just curious. Yana S. had the guts to give it the full five stars, and she wrote, This movie is absolutely excellent. From the beautiful soundtrack to the amazing animation to the liveliness of the characters, I can't get enough of this movie. And most people agreed. There was a lot of four and a half, five star reviews, but Sam J. only gave it two and a half stars. And he wrote, This film was almost good. Sam, I have no idea what you mean by that. It's a bizarre thing to write. Anthony M. gave it just a half star, and he just wrote a bunch of Z's. Methinks that Anthony has an attention problem. And at last, we have Cody Y., who only gave it one and a half stars, and he wrote, 
Even the large, expansive animation and fictional history can't save this movie from being jaded by very forgettable characters and a dull story. Really there, uh, Cody? I think we might have watched a different movie. The amazing part of these reviews is that I didn't find one person who used the word overrated. And as far as the IMDb parental warnings goes, under sex and nudity, it is written, The men in this film are in love with Sheeta, and she's only a girl of 13 years old. This is made for laughs. A few mild innuendos, nothing bad. Under violence and gore, we are warned that a girl falls and lands on a boy's head. Both of them are unharmed. At the same time, the scene is done in a more humorous manner. Two men get into a fight in a town. Some scenes of mild, intense action pepper the film. Explosions are frequently shown during these moments. Pazu and Shida are frequently shown in considerable danger. Many guns are fired throughout the duration of the film. One bullet fired near the end of the film gazes Pazu's cheek, followed by a brief spurt of blood. I read stuff like this and wonder, are there parents that really worry about this kind of thing? I mean, if your child is old enough to understand the story, well, I personally don't see a problem, but you know, that's me. So Nancy, on the charge of wasting Jeff's time with an inferior film, the court of Jeff finds you, of course, innocent. This was a wonderful family film, and I and I will go back and watch some of his other films. There's a bunch, I believe, on HBO Max. Thanks for recommending this film. I'm glad I watched it. It was no more than an insect, but it had life. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. You cannot escape me. I'll find you. I'll find you. I'll find you. I done all I can. Listen, Miss Morris. He's the murderer. It was like a nightmare. The few remaining survivors of the search party that was attacked report that the beast they encountered was many times the size they expected. The monster from the cave is approaching the town. Huh? It is not enough. It is not enough power. If only there were more power, Betty. Is there any way to generate more power? Try anything if there only chance. Oh, a little bit before I go. Near the beginning, I didn't mean to sound that I was putting down Speed Racer or Mach Go 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 as it was known in Japan. It was a big part of my childhood. I mean, so much different than anything that was being done in the USA at the time. Although there's always that issue of Speed killing somebody during the opening credits of every show. And uh, Anyway, the last thing I wanted to mention was Pippi Longstocking. Apparently, Miyazaki wanted to make a Pippi Longstocking film based on the books, but couldn't get permission. I'm just wondering if that had something to do with Captain Dola's hair in the movie. I mean, it's Pippi Longstocking's hair. Next Monday is the fourth Monday of the month, and that means Nancy and I will be talking about a film that has been riffed on Mystery Science Theater 3000 or one of its spin-off shows. Next week, we're going to do the classic Tom Graff film, Teenagers from Outer Space, a 1955 American independent black-and-white science fiction cult film. Now, Tom Graff was an interesting but troubled man, and I'm going to talk about him a bit. 
I actually know a lot about Tom because I uh, researched him quite a while back. So anyway, listen up. We have a Facebook page and we'd love to read your comments on it. It's called Celluloid Days. Could you please join it? We also have a Twitter account. It's at Twitter underscore days. And, you know, I'm always looking for suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email address for the show is daysofcelluloid at gmail.com. Days of celluloid, all being one word. You're always free to email me for any reason. I mean, even to say hi would be nice. And if you could leave me a review, hopefully a good one. Wherever you stream this podcast, I'd be forever grateful. Before I go, I want to thank Nancy Fry and Russell Devlin for contributing to today's show. And of course, to all of you who listen to the show and who repost this on social media, you have a special place in my heart. Take care, and we'll be back next Monday with Teenagers from Outer Space. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Two dollars multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time.